Wouldn't it be great if there was one health book out there that actually addressed your whole body, mind, spirit? Well, let me tell you, there is. It is called Clean Eating Dirty Sex. It is not about dirty sex. It is a play off the word clean. Central superfoods and aphrodisiac practices for ultimate sexual health and connection. This book is a healthy lifestyle guide. There are over 40 top experts from functional medicine physicians to registered dietitians to exercise physiologists to psychologists, sexologists, all engaged to help you live your happiest, healthiest life. There are over 50 fantastic, healthy, and delicious recipes. It is also a memoir where I, because I am the author of this book, Lisa Davis, share some very personal stories. Some are heartbreaking. Some are funny to help you get to where you need to be to understand that it does take time to change, but that I am here along with all the other health experts in the book to help you. Don't let the title fool you. This book will help your communication, your intimacy, how you relate to your partner, how you relate to yourself. But if you do what the book says, it will also help you in every aspect of your health. So please go now. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. It's sold in local bookstores across the country. Check it out. Clean eating, dirty sex. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Talk Healthy Today. I love documentaries and I just watched a fantastic one. It is called I'm Good Bro, Unmasking Black Male Depression. I have two fantastic gentlemen joining us, Corbin Coleman and Charles Crouch from 4C Visuals Group. It is a brainchild of these men. They met five years ago in corporate America. After several years, the two decided to embark on their own venture and tap into the God-given entrepreneurial spirit that both men men had in common. Their motto is simple. What you've been looking for is also looking for you. 4C Visuals Group is a brand consisting of web series forums, roundtable discussions, addressing pertinent issues in society, and also the black community in general. And they're also filmmakers. Gentlemen, welcome to Talk Healthy Today. How are you? Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's so good to have you on. Like I said in the beginning, I'm I'm a big fan of documentaries, and I think that it's such an important way to learn, and we need to talk about issues. As I mentioned before we started taping, I'm always talking to my daughter about social justice issues and lots of other things going on in this world right now, and that hard as they may be, we need to bring things to the forefront or nothing's going to change. So I want to thank you guys for what you're doing. Charles, I want to start with you. You in the beginning, and again, I I have a ha- I don't want to give away too much, okay? Because I took so many notes, like I pretty much <laughs> I'm like sure, reading this. Going, sure. I think I wrote. I think I just you know transcribed the whole um, thing. So I just want to just say that you're you say in the in the in the documentary, you're a 43 year old divorced father. You have a seven year old son. You're an author, poet, musician, filmmaker. You grew up in North Carolina. And you said this was interesting. You said, I had a pretty regular childhood for a black male. I, I'd love for you to expand on that for us. Okay. Uh, so what I meant by that was um, I grew up in, you know, my parents did not make a lot of money. Uh, you know, we, we, we made it by, if that makes sense. Um which is probably the story for 85 to 90% of young black men. You know, we, we, we don't grow up in with a bunch of privilege and, you know, you get a few things for Christmas and then that's it. And boy, you better eat that food because it's all we got. You know what I mean? So it's, it's kind of like, I, it was a pretty regular 
uh, you know, childhood for a black male. You know, I saw some violence. You know, I saw some, you know, I didn't sell drugs, but I knew the people that did. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so it it wasn't any, I didn't necessarily grow up very rough, but it wasn't the best of situations either. And and that's that's kind of regular for, for, for a black male. So that's what I meant by that. You talk about how you had hardworking parents, they attended church, but then in the sixth grade, you say, I knew something was wrong. And you talk about being sad a lot. You say you felt broken. And you also said you felt suicidal. Uh, talk to us about what was going on in sixth grade for you. And, and when did you first notice that something was wrong beyond just like regular down feelings about, you know, li- you know, just life because life can be tough. Sure. So, and I'm glad you said that because I, maybe that didn't come across correctly. I didn't feel suicidal in sixth grade. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, that didn't that didn't come until I was a fully functioning adult living on my own. Um, but yeah, when I was in the sixth grade, I just I just remember, like I said in the documentary, it was at one point where I was just sad, like all the time, and um, and I couldn't like I couldn't shake it. And the thing is, because it's hard to explain something that you don't understand. So I really couldn't talk to my parents about it or my friends because, you know, they'll be like, well, what's wrong? And you're like, I don't know. But you, so it, it, you know, it's kind of hard to explain that to somebody verbally, but I would just be very sad. I wouldn't go outside, you know, I'd stay in the house. Um, and this was pretty much my entire sixth grade year. And I thought maybe it was just a transition from elementary to middle school, but it wasn't that because it continued on. So, so one of the things that, that, that I noticed, and actually me and Charles had this discussion, um, I think either, uh, Charles, refresh my memory, if it was either right before we started filming this or, or while we were filming it. Actually, it was before uh, when I actually asked him, you know, if he has depression, um, you know, and, and, and I think that conversation was, was also a catalyst for us to do this documentary. Um, I had, you know, as a friend, I had noticed some things, you know, on the outside looking in, you know, about him. Like he, he wasn't, you know, communicating as much as we used to, or I, I would notice a certain tone uh, to our conversations and I picked up on it and I just asked one day and he was transparent and honest and said, yeah, I deal with depression. And he gave me some, you know, examples of what he's been through and, and we sort of went from there. So what that did was, Charles being self-aware made me aware of, of how to interact with him at times. So even during this, this documentary, so self-awareness is real important. So, so that helped me to know how to effectively communicate with, with him, you know, when going through this process, understanding, Hey, well, maybe I don't ask him all these questions I have to about this documentary today or what our next steps are or what our plan of action is today. Maybe I'll hold off. Maybe I'll be a little bit more surface level with him today, you know, so it helped me to understand him. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, there's a whole show on that, I would say, in, in terms of if you if you have a loved one who has a depression or another mental health challenge, how do you approach them? What works for them? It's not a one size fits all approach. It's not like a cookie cutter you know, approach. And, and I think people need to, to realize that. 
You know, their their intentions are good. Their intentions are good. The heart is in the right place, but it's just knowing how to go about it is is the uh, the challenge. Right. And I think just getting this conversation started is so important. You have some fantastic people in the movie. Uh, There's uh, Damon R. Cromwell. Uh, He talks about adverse childhood experiences. He also talks about, you know, these mental health challenges not being recognized in the African community, which we touched on. Uh, There's Bronji. He's a musician, cultural expert, youth mentor. And as you call him, Charles, he is your brother. So talk to us about that was interesting. You said there's your brother. And then you said a couple other things. This is like the one thing I didn't write down. (laughs) Oh, it's cool. So (laughs) what I I said was in the film, you know, most most black men, we, we, you know, we kind of separate people we know. You know, you got your homies, you got your friends, and then you have your brother. Like, that's the dude. Like when Corbin asked me, yo, man, you know, are you, you know, do you have depression? You know, what's going on? You know what I'm saying? That instantly put him in my brother category because that's personal stuff. You see what I'm saying? You know, like just a friend, like somebody at work or a homie, somebody I see from time to time, you know, they're not going to know that. You know what I mean? Um, well, you know, unless I choose to to tell him that. But because Corbin reached out and he noticed some things, he was aware, you know, he noticed patterns with me, you know. And and I've known Corbin for, for quite a while. You know, we, we clicked back in. You know, it was kind of a, a kindred spirit going on. And so we kind of clicked back when we worked together in corporate America. And we had always kept in touch, even after, you know, I left the job. Um, but yeah, I mean, your brother, like that's somebody you can, you reach out to like, yo man, I need somebody to talk to, or, you know, like, you know, let me borrow something, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, oh, completely. You know, you got, you got your brothers that, you know, you, you trust your life with. And so that, so that's, that, that's definitely what I meant by that. Oh, that's awesome. You know, you mentioned corporate America a minute ago and you bring that up in, in the, in the film, which I think is so important. Um, and you, you said something that just, it's just heartbreaking. Uh, this isn't, this isn't verbatim, but you said, um, I don't think the average person understands the amount of restraint, uh, that us as black men have, uh, have to exercise on a daily basis. Uh, we spend a majority of our day without the ability to be authentic for eight hours a day. I can't really be myself. I can't talk to these clients and customers and be Charles. That is horrendous. You should be you and people should just not uh, anyway it just makes me really aggravated or maybe that was when my daughter's like mommy this is too sad like it's just it's just not fair so talk to us about that because my god that would make anybody sad it's really flipping hard yeah and and i'll let i'll let Corbin speak on this too but but basically what i was saying was that you know like my job now i work with you know a bunch of engineers and it's it's just predominantly white men and you know, it's funny. Yesterday, I was I was coming back in from lunch, and I just kind of happened to uh, just look at the office and as a whole, and I was like, honestly, like I really don't fit in here, you know. And so when I said that I couldn't be myself, you know, I have to, uh, like I said in the documentary, I have to transform. We we have to become a different person. Uh, and it's not a thing of being accepted, but it's because right now this is my bread and butter, so I just have to adapt. 
So, you know, I can't talk like I usually do. You know, I can't express my opinion like I want to because I have several, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, um, you know, but because I am, uh, in theory, the minority there, I can't be myself. I, I can't be myself. And it's like that for most black men, especially in the corporate America setting. And, and, and Corbin, if you want to take this, you know, just kind of explain, because Corbin kind of know, understands what I'm saying. So, so yeah. So, um, one example I can give is, um, I, I'll simply call it the Obama effect. And it's, if you let one person, this is in corporate America, if you let one person through, um, that person represents the whole African-American community. So if that one person messes up, then are the powers that be are going to give another opportunity to someone that looks like me. So it's having that weight on you that you represent that one person, just one person <laughs> represents our entire race. <laughs> and, and, and you think about the opportunity. So it's like, I can't mess up. I can't mess up. And of course, if you, if you look at it from that perspective, <clears throat> if you're worried about not messing up, then it's a possibility you're going to mess up. It may be minute, maybe small, right? It's, it's, it's just too much. So we've actually discussed that at my job, you know, b- before and, and the weight and having to, to carry that. Um, it's, in my honest opinion, it's an unnecessary weight. I feel like we shouldn't have to carry that, but we do. So that's stressful and, and that has some bearing on your mental health. Oh, definitely. You know, Braun also mentioned it, it's that. And you also have to deal with this whole BS of, oh, well, uh, you know, are you qualified or are you here because you're African-American? I mean, it's it's yeah. a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And that's why I said I, I don't think uh, a great majority of people really understand the amount of and and I put an emphasis on the term restraint that black men have to use every day. I mean, in every isolated situation, we have to say, okay, well, let me not do this. I'll give you an example. Um, I, it's funny. I put a post on Facebook the other day. Uh, well, no, it was a couple of weeks ago. And I said, brothers, I said, what is one of the most uncomfortable situations for you? And I was looking to see if we were going to answer the same. And all of those brothers said, being on an elevator alone with the white woman. That's very uncomfortable for us. And you would think that it's uncomfortable for the white woman, but it's very uncomfortable for us because like when I'm on, when I'm on an elevator, like with the white woman, like I just make sure I just, I stand still. I don't, I, you know, unless she speaks, I don't make eye contact. I no sudden movements or anything because you just, it's just a very uncomfortable situation because in the back of your mind, you're thinking, she's probably thinking I'm going to try to do something to her. Oh my God. That is horrible. See, that's so not in my consciousness because the way I was raised, I can't even like, yeah, I'm just I'm not blown away because I know that's real. Right. It just breaks my heart is what I'm saying. I'm not I ignorant. Mean, you know, and that absolutely. And that's like, you know, going in the store and we're not even going to mention when we get pulled over. Like it, it, 
like Dr. Cromwell said, like when we when when we see a cop behind us, I mean anxiety just instantly. And 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 that's why I said that, you know, that caused stress, anxiety, you know, and it's and we live have to live with that every day. You know, recently I pulled into a parking lot at a grocery store and a cop pulled up next to me and he he motioned to me to roll down my window and he said uh, your sticker is expired. You need to get your um, inspection sticker. I didn't want to pull you over. I didn't want to alarm you. And I'm like, if I was black, you would have pulled me over and you would have given me a hard time. And I was angry. I'm like, don't give me this bullshit white privilege treatment. I was annoyed. And it's, it's, it's funny that you um, bring up the, the elevator uh, situation uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Charles, you may remember this. I had uh, won a raffle at work. Uh, won some tickets to the uh, Carolina Hurricanes hockey game. You know, box seats, VIP, everything. So um, uh, Charles was unable to make it. So uh, I contacted one of my other friends and and we went. So we go to the game and, you know, we go through the process. You know, you go through the lines and, um, of course, they check everybody. I wind them down and we get to the elevator. The Our seats was on the second floor. So we get in the elevator. There was a couple already in there. And we all go up to the second floor. So these were true Carolina Hurricanes fans. They had the jerseys on and everything. Get to the second floor. They walk out the elevator and it goes to where their, their seats were. We walk out and we're getting, we know we're following the numbers on, on the wall and everything. And the attendant just stopped us. He said, hey, you know, can I help you? You know, I said, hey, you know, we're just looking for our seats, showed him our tickets and everything. He's like, oh, OK, you're in a suite. Your box seats are over here. It's like, oh, OK. So he walks us over there and we, and we go in. And as soon as we get in there, I look towards my friend and I said, I wonder why he stopped us if it didn't stop the other couple. And it just made me wonder, you know, I know we looked out of place. I'm going to keep it real. I know we looked out of place. We black guys at a hockey game, <laughs> you know. In a suite, in a suite, if anything else, you know, people looking at us like, "What are they doing here?" But it, it we, we just looked at each other and we both thought the same thing, you know, like, "Why did we stop them and see if they needed help to their seat?" But he stopped us. So, so yeah, so so that that's a situation that just happened about two weeks ago. Braun talks about how in this this administration has put added pressure on black men. Well, I know for for me. Um, it was one, I couldn't believe he got elected, <laughs> but <laughs> at, the, at the same token, I, I, I could, you know, once it's settled in, you know, I, I could believe it, but people started showing their true colors, you know, um, and I believe it was what, uh, Brian and, and Charles had mentioned in the documentary, how that deep seated, you know, racism was somehow now it's okay to just show it, whether it's on social media, in person. I mean, the, the rallies that we've seen. I mean, when, when he came down here to North Carolina, he was in Fayetteville, which is about a little bit over an hour away from us. And we saw the rally. And just to see the his base so riled up. And it was like, wow, this is something that, you see on TV, you know, like back in the 50s and 60s. And I'm, 
I, I thought not necessarily that this was over, but this was maybe not something in the forefront anymore. This may be in, in, behind us a little bit. So to actually see that in the 2000s was like, wow. Um, and, and I actually tried to give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I, I, people would probably look at me and like, well, I'm crazy. I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt and said, no, I don't think he's racist. I think he's an opportunist. And he know who to appeal to. So I, so I get it. But then some of the policies and things that he's doing, maybe like, wait a minute, I think we're going to rethink this. Maybe he's both. <laughs> so, and, and, and just to see this, as Charles mentioned, the blatant racism, just blatant. You know, before it was hidden. Now it's just blatant. So, so that, that's, yeah. It's like now, you know, with me being a black man, like if I engage or if a white person engages me, you know, in conversation, you know, it's like you have to, you have to put this gauge out. Just kind of talk to them to kind of see where they're at before you, you know what I mean? Because here's my thing. I'll be honest, like even just the very sight of a Trump Pence bumper sticker on the car, and it shouldn't be like this, but it automatically causes me to pass judgment on that person. And it's, it's just like, I, I can't talk to them. I'm not gonna be able to, you know, for example, like I know there are some staunch Trump supporters that I work with. Like they don't hide it. And I just, I here again, I just, hey man, how you doing? Good morning. And that's it. Because they just have a way of of turning every conversation into something political. I remember, I think I think I told Corbin about this. Uh I was talking to him about this about a couple of years ago. Um, I don't know, Lisa, if you remember Philando Castile, the, the guy that got killed when his girlfriend. And and we were talking about that, and I knew I should not have engaged this person in this conversation. But and he was a white guy. And um, you know, he was pretty much saying, Well, you know, he shouldn't have moved. And and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, had that been you in that call, would you would you be alive? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I would have I would have known not to move. And I said, you know what? I said, let's just end this conversation right here. I said, let's just let's just stop. Let's be cordial. And that's it. I said because if we continue this conversation, one of us is not going to have a job, and and that person is going to be me. And so we have, and so you don't know who carries that mindset. So here again, like I said before, you know, we have to gauge every situation to say, am I going to engage this person? And, you know, and it's just, it's just sad. And it's, it's the, the cult of personality, I mean, is, is what drives this, this country right now. It, you know, it's not about, you know, politics. It's, they this is Trump's country and whatever he says goes. Whatever he says goes. I mean, this man just said yesterday that we're building building a border around Colorado. And I'm like, 
what? And I'm like, nobody said, hey, hey, buddy, um, yo, you know that's not on the board. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it's sad. And and here again, you know, we, we just have to chill and use, like I said earlier, restraint. We just have to use restraint all the time. How do you handle that? Because you could get a handle. Let's say you, you take your medication, you go to therapy, you do what you need to do. But then you have this constant situational depression. How do you balance that, Charles? Um, it, it's very hard. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm blessed to have a very good support system. Oh, good. Um, you know, my, my family, you know, my brothers, you know, like Corbin and, and Bron, you know, that was, uh, in the documentary, right? you know, um, you know, Corbin and I'll be on the phone and, and he'll, he'll just be like, yo man, you all right? You know, it's like he, he now he kind of knows because we spent so much time together, especially like doing this documentary. Mm. Uh, you know, he'll say, yo, man, you, you all right? And then, you know, then I'll say, nah, yeah, I'm good, bro. And that's how I actually got the title because I'm good, bro. Is a, That's a defense mechanism for us. That's our way of, it's, it's a lie when you're actually not, you know what I'm saying? And so, um, you know, and so people that are close to me, they kind of know now, you know, what Chuck seems, and I'm sorry, everybody calls me Chuck, he, you know, Chuck, he seems, he seems a little off today. He seems a little down and this, you know, and, and people tend to think of mental illness of somebody that's crazy and, you know, licking the window and, but it, it's not that, you know, in the year 2002, that's the actual year that I was diagnosed that's the year that I actually admitted myself into the mental hospital to seek treatment. And so, you know, my parents came, I mean, they came every day. Now uh, the young lady, I was the young lady I was dating at the time came every single day. Um, you know, my sisters came. And so my brother was very reluctant to come and I didn't realize until years later why he didn't come. And the reason why he didn't come until like the next to the last day I was there because he was like, yo, man, I didn't want to see you, you know, in a straight jacket in some padded room, you know. And I was like, no, man, you, you've known me for my whole life that, you you know, no, that's not what it is. It's And, and it dawned on me then that um, that's what people picture. It's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? Right, exactly. And it's like, no, it's, it's not that at all. You know, this is a this is a thing that a lot of it's, it's a fight that a lot of people hide very well because it's that stigma there and, it, and it's not that at all. So, yeah. Well, again, that's why the documentary is so important, because we want people to get help. I mean, you have people in, you know, what we already talked about, just the daily stress of being black in this country and a black man in this country. Then you also have. Uh, the stress you grew up with. And the, I mean, I don't know anybody who didn't have trauma in their childhood. Mm -hmm. Some had a little, some had a lot, but it does affect you. And it's so important to get to that. One of the stories, oh, it broke my heart, uh, was Lamont Joe. And uh, he talks about when he was a kid and, and his parents are splitting up and they both want him. And his, his mom's in the car grabbing his arm, his dad, and the, his mom's driving away. They're going to like pull him apart. And it's, it, it's so, and it, it's like, it's, I can picture it both physically and mentally. This child is being torn apart.
by this. And then his dad gets into drinking and his mom is into drugs. And then eventually she gets it together. But by then there's, they're already in the streets, right? He says there's already been. And so not being able to get help for that trauma and not, and then I'm sure again, the whole layer of, well, I'm a man, I'm not going to talk about how I feel. So talk to us about that. I, I really enjoyed uh, hearing from uh, Lamont and everybody else in the film. So and I'll speak and then I'll let Corbin talk. But I'm going to tell you the reason why I got Lamont. So Lamont and I grew up together. And um, and Lamont, does. I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing this. Lamont was a wild dude. <laughs> like, he was, Lamont was a firecracker. And, you know, Lamont, Lamont's got about three felonies. Uh you know, uh, on his record. And, you know, he finally turned his life around. And the, now Lamont is working on his master's in counseling. And so I kind of got him for dual purposes because, first of all, he has the knowledge, you know, about depression being a counselor, but because I also knew his background. And the reason why I got him was because I know that he could speak to both degrees on, you know, growing up like that, how, you know, environmental uh, things can impact, you know, how you your outlook on life. But then, like I said, he also has, you know, the, the education now to, to speak on that. But Corbin, I'll let you go ahead and, and speak on that. What I noticed is, is that the change. So I couldn't see you know, some, some of the stories that, that were told about him that, that Chuck has told me and even in some of the things that Lamont said about himself, I couldn't see that based upon who we filmed on that day. So it's like, like wow, that was really you? You know, based upon how, how you present yourself, how you talk, what you're doing now, you know, like, wow. You know, he really has a story to tell. And it was just amazing, just the transformation piece to hear about where he started and then of course went through unfortunate circumstances, went through the trauma and everything like that and to see where he's at now. And it was like, so that's what I see. I see the now, but to hear about the then, the past is like, wow. So just imagine being on the other side of the camera looking at this and like, I don't see that. I see <laughs> this, you know? So it, it was just an, an amazing uh, story and I was in awe. Yeah. Oh, I was in awe watching yeah. him. He's really striking. I was like, wow. Yeah, and, and I'll say, I'll, I'll say that um, Lamont has a. There's a whole section that we didn't get to put in a documentary, and we're probably we're, we're looking at doing a part two, where he actually where he actually talks about how how mental um, how mental illness is handled in prison, and it is nothing short of heart-wrenching. I would love if you did that. You know, one of the things that I want to make sure we, 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 we touch on was something that uh, Reverend Jason Sloan talked about was another thing in the African-American community is this whole idea of, well, we're going to pray over this or we're going to discipline this out of you. And that's, you know, praying is great, but praying isn't going to it isn't right. going to cure your mental illness. Mm -hmm. It can be supportive. It's right. a supportive piece in an overall package, you know? Um, so talk to us about that because that that's tough too. Yeah. I, um, 
you know, and it's funny because when I was first, you know, sharing with my parents, you know, you know, hey, I'm depressed. You know, my dad is, um, and, and I love him. He's my best friend. And he's, and, and now he's kind of, you know, he's educated himself too. But, you know, at first he was that guy, you know, oh man, get, get the devil off of you, you know. You know, Jesus will make it, you know, and I, and it's hard to explain to people that it's deeper than that. Like, like this is a, and the reason why people say that, because let's just be honest, they don't think it's a real illness. And I tell people all the time, I said, you don't tell a person with cancer, just pray about it. You know, you don't tell a person with, you know, high blood pressure or, you know, hey, just pray about it. You'll be okay. No, you pray with that person while they're going to chemo. And, and so I think in, in the, in the church sector, um, and like I said, in, in the documentary, you know, let's just be honest, you know, especially in the black church, it's just a place. It's, it's a place that's just filled with a lot of feminine energy. Uh, and I'm not saying that from a chauvinistic point of view at all, but you know, it's women emotionally fill the church. And men, like I said, we count the money, you know, we cut the grass with the deacons. There's one pastor and, you know, he's responsible for making sure that his, his flock is okay. And, and, and a lot of times the men are kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of left in the shuffle. You know, we don't, you know, we, we don't have that space uh, to say, hey, man, this is what I'm dealing with. And they say, well, okay, well, you know, well, just get in the prayer line, let me lay hands on you. And like Jason said, a lot of times you leave, you leave that worse than before you did. I'll be completely honest with you. I went to, when I admitted myself to the hospital, it was on a Sunday morning. And the place I was right before I went to the hospital was at an altar at church. I got up from the altar I said, mom, take me to the hospital. Because I knew that that, not a knock on it, but I was like, this, this isn't enough. You know, I've got the spiritual aspect of it. Now I need to get the, the natural taken care of. And then, right. And then a lot of times, if you do take that route, then it becomes a thing of, well, where's your faith? You don't think God can heal you? Yeah, I do. But, you know, until that happens in totality, I'm going to go get me some help. Right, because they wouldn't say that to someone with diabetes. They'd be like, you need to watch what you're eating exactly. and and you can love God, but God's not going to heal your diabetes. Exactly. <laughs> that make right. sense. And, exactly. And, and, and then, the, you know, and especially now, you know, and there's nothing wrong with it, but, the, the you know, the whole faith movement uh, you know, it's you're kind of shunned or looked at as, you know, your faith level is not up to par. You know what I'm saying? Because you you know, because you're going to seek, you know, you know, uh, help somewhere else. I mean, you know, money's not falling out the sky, but you can believe God that you can get a loan. You know what I mean? It's like and you have to <laughs> and so you just you have to look at it from 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 both angles, but now I think the church is starting to realize that, and like, okay, you know, we can't add this extra element in here. That was that was the one part of this documentary that I'm not going to lie to you, uh, Lisa. I was a little bit nervous about 
especially when we did some of our uh, screenings, uh, pre-screenings in churches. So <laughs> I would tend to look at over to uh, the deacons and, and pastors to see their body language. You know, when we got to that portion <laughs> of the document, <laughs> just were like, okay, we're gonna have to answer to this one. You know, and just the, the reception that we got, which I'm so glad we did pre-screenings, the reception that we got from the church, um, actually just yesterday, um, we did we did a screening at a, a junior college and one of the, the people in the audience asked, hey, can I show this at my church and would y'all be willing to come? You know, I was like, yeah, you know, we'd be more than happy to come. So it's like they get it. You know, they see the importance of it to have this discussion that is more than just faith and, and prayer. You you got to have that 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 other piece to it. Because it, it, in the Bible, it does say faith without works is dead. Well, you can have the faith part. Now, the work is, you know, let's 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 get your mental health in order. What, what can we do to get you there? It's a it's a marriage of the two. And I think the church is now really beginning to, to realize that versus just to pray it away. And let me lay hands on you. And, and, and as Charles mentioned, your faith is not strong enough. Is they're looking at other avenues because clearly that's not working. Faith is not working by itself. You know, you need something more, which is what, you know, Jason said and what Dr. Cromwell said and, and Michelle said. So so I, I'm, I'm glad that we addressed it and I'm glad that we received the reception that we did because we addressed it. And we've gotten great feedback. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, Lisa, let's, you know, let's just be honest about it. You've got pastors committing suicide. So that, that should tell you something right there. You know, uh, I mean, and this, this, this was a, but I do know of some black pastors that's committed suicide, but uh, just not too long ago it was in California. I can't remember the brother's name. I mean, he was, he was a white guy, but it still, it still resonates. Um, you know, he committed suicide and he was like, like the mental health counselor at the church. Uh, he was under Greg Laurie. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he was under Greg Laurie. And yeah, I mean, this was like a couple of weeks ago and committed suicide. So, I mean, yeah, it's a, it, it needs to be addressed, period. You know, that's in the story. It, it needs to be addressed. If you got pastors that are committing suicide now, then obviously, you know, faith and prayer alone are not are not doing it. Well, I thought you did a fantastic job in the film. I mean, granted, I'm a I'm a cultural Jew. I'm not very religious. I so this isn't you know something I'm used to. Um, so I might not be the right person to speak on it. But to me, it was done so well. You weren't saying don't believe in God, don't pray. Mm. Don't you just said there needs to be more. I, I thought it was very well put. Coming from a yeah. cultural Jew. <laughs> but but it sounds like the churches that you've shown it to haven't ha- been like, oh, are right. you putting us down? I mean, because you didn't. I mean, you've been, it sounds mm-hmm. like you've been getting a good reception. Yes. They've been very, re- I mean, every time we show it, I mean, they're like, hey, you know, somebody's like, hey, can you come show this at, at my church? And I think it's probably a thing of, I've been wanting to say this for so long, but I didn't know how. But, but, but these guys shed a good light on it. Hey, bring this to my church. And I, I, I think it's an awesome thing. 
Charles or Corbin, have you heard from anybody who's seen the film and said, wow, this, you know, I have been experienced some depression? Um, actually, yes. Um, I had a friend of mine, um, I was uh, soliciting feedback, you know, so people we had sent the link to and to say, hey, you know, t tell me your thoughts, you know, honest opinion, you know, don't hold anything back. And she said her and her daughter watched it. And her daughter is about 22. And she said, once they watched it, her daughter looked over to her and said, Mom, uh, I think I want to see a therapist. So it's, and I'm going to be perfectly honest, Lewis, I mean, uh, Lisa and, and Chuck, you could say something about this too. When we filmed this documentary, I didn't think about the impact that it would really have. I was just thinking, okay, we put the awareness out there and, and, and that's it. You know, people do with it with what they want to. But to get that personal feedback and say, hey, because of your documentary, I was able to have this conversation with my daughter and my daughter now wants to see a therapist. That was just like eye opening for me. Um, it got me emotional because I didn't know that was going to be the impact. And, and even amongst uh, some of the other stories that we tell in the documentary, the, uh, the couple uh, in the very beginning, um, he had Deron and his wife, Trishan, and people was drawn a lot of people were drawn to their story and to get some of the 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 feedback that we've gotten about them um to say hey man we didn't know that was going on with him you know because me and deron went to school together so um and and we also sent the, the, the documentary out to our alumni association so now everybody we went to school with has seen it and everybody's like we didn't know what was going on you know we didn't know i'm like i didn't know <laughs> so, um, so for him to share that story with us and to be transparent, you know, has helped a lot of people. And I think that's the one thing that maybe I didn't take into consideration while filming it. You didn't realize it. But then after the fact, you're like, wow, this is really eye opening and it's, it's helping a lot of people. And they're having the open dialogue and the conversation with their loved ones to, to seek help and understand that it's okay to see a therapist. Yeah. I'll tell you the reason, um, just to kind of look at it on a grander scale, uh, Lisa, the, the main reason that I did this documentary was because I could tell through conversation, through talking to my friends, just, you know, people I would meet, brothers, black men. I was like, I don't think a lot of men realize that this is something that they deal with. If you look at the just the history of African American men and, and the things that we've had to go through, you know, like I said in the documentary, from coming over from slavery, you know, going through civil rights, I'm one generation removed. My dad could not sit on the in front of the bus. That's that's one generation removed from me. He's 70 years old. And he he would tell me these stories like there used to be a black hospital and a white hospital. And it would take, you know, it, it would take so much longer for the black, you know, I mean, so I'm, and I'm like, I'm one generation removed from him. And I'm like, so it's not a far-fetched idea that that residue could affect me and my emotions. You know what I mean? So I was like, I don't think, because black men, we're so, we're so conditioned to be strong and not to talk about how we feel and, you know, man up. I hate that term, man up. It's it's like it, it, no some things you have to face head on, and I wanted to break that stigma. You know, um, 
I'm sure you're familiar with Charlemagne the God. You know, he, you know, he kind of he's in that realm too. Like, like, yo, man, this is something that we do, and you shouldn't be ashamed of it. And we need to get help because at the end of the day, men are the foundation for the family. And if the and and, and if and and if the black men, you know, if the the foundation, you know, they won't condemn a home until it's a crack in the foundation. The walls could be falling out, you know, everything. But once it's a crack in that foundation, they're going to say, you know, this home is no good. And I think a lot of, because of these emotional traumas and the stress that we deal with, there's a lot of crack foundations in homes and that are wondering, you know, uh, about the demise of the Black family and stuff like that. So I'm like, this is stuff that we need to deal with fellas you know this is you know let's let's look into it and let's get the help that we need so we can so we can build a, a strong african-american community and so that's that's one of the reasons that's actually the main reason i was like yo man let's 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 find some cameras let's go to youtube figure out how to do this and let's do it and that's what we did well you did an amazing job it, it really and this has been oh my gosh i could talk to you guys forever this has been such a great conversation how do t- tell us where to find this on YouTube? So you can go to our YouTube channel. Uh, you can uh, put in our uh, our company name four C. So that's the number four, the letter C, uh, space visuals with a S uh, group. So four C visuals group. So people ask us about that name. Like, how did the name come about? Well, actually, actually, it's a play on our name. So Corbin Coleman Charles Crouch four C's. And then, of course, 4C, if you break that down, you know, 4C and into the future, so 4C and have that foresight. So you know, it's, it's a play on words. So um, so that's how that came about. Um, you can see, you know, of course, our documentary is about 55 minutes. You can also see the trailers prior to the documentary. Uh, we got um, two clips of those on our YouTube channel as well. So for all of those who are going to go to our YouTube channel and watch the documentary. Uh, we also ask that you comment under the documentary as well. We've had people that when we've shared it on social media, they'll comment under the social media post, but don't comment under the actual uh, YouTube post. So that helps us a lot, you know, that we can really track everything uh, in regard to that and we can interact with everybody. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's where it's at. You know, it's out there for public consumption. You know, please like, share, comment. And we really appreciate it. So give us feedback. We would really appreciate that. Yeah, and, and make sure you subscribe <laughs> to the channel. Yeah, we got on the NRX again with subscriptions. So yeah, we need some yeah. subscribers. It is tough out there. Holy cow. <laughs> oh, oh boy. By the way, I love a good play on words. Uh, I have a book that came out in February, um, which is often misunderstood. It's called Clean Eating, Dirty Sex. It's not really about dirty sex. It's just a play on words. Clean, dirty, but I don't know. They're lacking a sense of humor these days. <laughs> Anyway, it's a really good book. Um, <laughs> I'm so shameless with my plug. You guys are fantastic. The work you do is amazing. I'm so glad you came on the show. Now, can people also just go to YouTube and type in I'm Good Bro, uh, Unmasking Blackmail Depression? Will it come up that way? It, it'll come up. It's the only documentary with that name. So, yeah. Gentlemen, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Everybody, rate, review, subscribe. Yep, it, we need those uh, those things. I want to thank everyone for listening and have a great day. Mm-hmm.